listening to the Coronavirus Diaries, Human Rights in the Age of a Global Pandemic, a series of online conversations with experts hosted by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. The Institute is Canada's leading think tank, working at the intersection of human rights, conflict, and emerging technologies. As we watch the global pandemic unfold, this series will look at what impacts the coronavirus will have on human rights, geopolitics, and democracy, and what role technology and disinformation will play. Hello, everyone. This is Kyle Matthews, Executive Director of the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. Uh, we're pleased today to continue our online interviews about human rights during the coronavirus pandemic. Um, I'm here today with David Mulroney, Canada's uh, former ambassador to China, a very well respected Canadian voice on Chinese Canadian relationships and understanding Chinese society and politics. David is also uh, associated with the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. David, let me start. Thank you very much for joining us today on this uh, kind of, at least it's a rainy day in, in, in Montreal. I'm not sure what it's like in Toronto. Same thing in Toronto and good to be with you. So David, um, I'd like to start off because this, this coronavirus pandemic that started off really just a few months ago in Wuhan, China, has spread, has impacted the life of almost everyone across the planet. You and I are, are now in, uh, stuck in our homes, not really going out. But what's been really interesting to me, and I'd like to ask you, is about how in the last few weeks we've seen the Chinese government and Chinese state-owned media outlets really go on the offensive in their public diplomacy. Um, you know, there's been a, a pushing uh, conspiracy theories that the U.S. Army is responsible for this. I'm wondering if you could just tell us about what we should think about this and, and what really stands out in your mind about this, uh, this, this outpouring of, of, of messaging on social media by Chinese authorities. Well, whenever China raises its voice, and gives an issue prominence, it's because they, they see it as a problem, a priority certainly, but also a problem. And um, this virus is a great problem for China, for China, a problem for the Communist Party of China because of its management of all things in Chinese life, and a particular problem for Xi Jinping, the Chinese leader who's had already had a difficult year and more if we look back at the protests in Hong Kong, at the trade war with the United States, at the, the, the recognition, the growing global recognition of the enormity of what's happening in Xinjiang. So critics of Xi Jinping will be saying, here's yet another issue you've mishandled. And we're seeing in this global response and, and China's use of social media, deploying its diplomats, using its traditional media, is an effort to counter that, to say that Far from being the source of the problem, China's response has been something the rest of the world can learn from. And indeed, China is now in a full-scale effort to donate equipment and to win hearts and minds through its response, always with the message that uh, you can learn from China. So I think this breaks another issue. There's been um, a total outbreak, well, not an outbreak, but um, a push on this medical diplomacy where, as you said, China is trying to be seen as, um, look, we're here to help. The U.S. is not here to help you. But there's also been, you know, pushback by certain states. I've seen the Czech Republic and the Netherlands and Spain. They're saying a lot of the equipment they're getting from the Chinese is actually not working or it's faulty. Um, what is it? Well, what's your take on this? Is this just a continuation of the same narrative? Or is it also showing that there's a breakdown in trust between certain states and, and asking for Chinese help? So it is certainly partly a continuation of that narrative. But it's also China. China is very opportunistic. And, uh, you know, it never lets a, a crisis pass without uh, gaining some benefit. Uh, if we look back to 2008 and the terrible earthquake in Sichuan, China's response to that was quite muddled. And as Ai Weiwei indicated, 
a lot of the deaths in, in Sichuan were due to shoddy construction materials to a real failure of local administration. But China turned that into a story of heroism. So in 2010, at the uh, World's Fair in Shanghai, the movie that ran in the Chinese pavilion, so this is the key opportunity for China to share its message, was about the heroism of the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, and saving lives in Sichuan. So it, it's very good at, at telling this story and sort of reweaving the narrative to, uh, to good effect. And it's now trying to do the same thing with the pandemic through its donation of uh, equipment and supplies, but it's also seizing the opportunity to bring more people over to its camp. So its approach to countries in Europe, particularly Eastern Europe, is directly, not through the EU, bilateral, deal with China. And it's also, I think, seizing the fact that there's great political division in the United States and in the Western world about the role of President Trump to begin to use some of that distance and some of that um, political uh, warfare to its advantage. What are they trying to accomplish with this? Is this, is this a, a long game in which it's trying to assert its authority and, and to see you know, Western um, states or, or institutions like the EU that kind of weaken a little bit and it gives it more of a prominent role? Is, is that what this this long game is all about? So one of China's long games is to weaken the alliance that has supported the United States, that the United States has built up since the end of the Second World War. And any time it can pull a country away from that alliance, it sees that as a victory. The other thing is to try to recover uh, and rehabilitate the uh, reputation of the party and of Xi Jinping. So if they can show people back home that China is getting applause is getting uh, commended for its response, that begins to take some of the sting off the, the very real concern that people felt when China was being pointed to as the, the source of the crisis. So, so I, I find this, this is absolutely fascinating. It's this, this almost a global battle of narratives. Um, and from coming from the Chinese government, um, there really is no mention that the virus um, you know, emerged in Wuhan. There's, there's no talk about um, the bungling of the initial cases of, 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 you know, persecuting certain doctors that were raising awareness and, and the fact that that has partly led to this spreading across the world, um, as not just Hubei or China, but, but going further. And there's no mention of that. And, and I, I'm wondering if you could talk to us a bit, because as China is starting to, to try to almost take in playbooks from Russia, you know, conspiracy theories uh, that this is all, it was caused by the U.S., has that led to an increase in, in xenophobia in China? I know there's been more reports of anti-foreigner rhetoric and attacks. Do you see this as interlinked? Yeah, it's hard to, to say you know, where people are at in China right now because as many, although some voices do get out, it's, it's pretty tightly managed. Uh, the New York Times uh, has done some really interesting reporting on um, what happened in the, you know, in the immediate aftermath of the outbreak. China was supposed to have learned from SARS, where it was, again, rightly criticized for failing to provide early warning. It was supposed to have learned from that. In fact, it did set up systems. Everything in China is complicated. It's not black and white. China actually did do very good work at the public health level to see if it could alert uh, broader Chinese society and global society if there was an outbreak. And those systems were in place and they were beginning to work. But the great problem, the sort of original sin of the Communist Party is that it can brook no, no criticism, that you never get ahead in the Chinese system by making your boss look bad or by delivering him or her bad news. So as these systems, be, according to the Times, as these systems began to kick in, 
uh, political pressure caused them to be muted. And so we lost valuable time. And I think people, certainly in Wuhan, are aware of this. There's also a counter narrative in Wuhan that maybe you know, there were more fatalities than, than China is letting on to. At the same time, you also have this concerted effort uh, by China to message that not only has it completely you know, conquered the virus, now new, ca new cases are coming from foreigners coming into China. And those foreigners are not described, but it's assumed that they are not Chinese people who have been traveling and coming back. The, the imported cases come from people who really are foreign to China. And that, I think, mixes with a degree of xenophobia that's always present in Chinese society. China is a very friendly place. I love my travels there. But you get some pretty frank questions sometimes. And um, there are some things that happen to foreigners or ways that foreigners reported on in China that really would be considered quite inappropriate in other cultures. So you have this xenophobia abetted by messaging from the state about this now coming from, from abroad that's making, that's stirring things up again in China. And, and the issue, of course, for China always is, and for the government, is that stirring up the people can be quite dangerous. You can't control it. It's like setting a fire in a forest. There are no controlled fires, right? They can burn out of control. So uh, the, the government is always you know, sort of setting these things up and then trying to, to tame them and control them. One last uh, comment, too, about how there are multiple voices in China. Just as you had these conspiracy theorists saying that the virus came from abroad and in fact it may have been black ops by some U.S. biomedical lab or something, you also had the very sober voice of the Chinese ambassador to Washington, Sui Kai. I knew him when he was a director general for North America, so he was a senior person we dealt with. He's a very seasoned diplomat, a very serious person. He certainly does the bidding of the party. He, you know, he knows when to um, you know, to deliver the, the, the government's line, but he is a sober and serious person. And he said, we should cease, we, we shouldn't be pointing fingers like this and to suggest that the Americans did this is wrong. So you have these divergent voices, but the difference now is that China's allowing the more radical conspiracy theorists to have a degree of free reign that you might not have seen in the past. No, I find that very interesting because I, I saw the, um, the Chinese ambassador to the U.S., his comments, and I said, hey, here's a, here's a rational person. He's acting like a real diplomat. But seeing, uh, you know, the spokesman for the Chinese foreign ministry, the, the former Chinese ambassador to Pakistan, I mean, he was citing or retweeting a Montreal-based conspiracy website, which is, um, as I said before, is almost like uh, Infowars of the left, um, <laughs> global research. And I've seen him, he was subtweeting just random accounts of American citizens who had no expertise in anything. And, and I thought there was a, a real kind of sign of desperation. Um, and, you know, now, people may say and, and say with some justification, well, you know, look what happens in Washington. Sometimes President Trump says uh, things that aren't supported by facts and, and other, you know, uh, radical voices are heard that peddle conspiracy theories. And that does happen. But the difference always is that in the United States, you have voices within the administration, you have voices within the political spectrum, not just Democratic, but also Republican voices that counter that. You've got media, you've got academics, you've got civil society. So even when um, sometimes uh, at the very top, people seem uh, a little less than, than fully transparent, you have a whole bunch of systems that kick in to challenge that. And that doesn't happen in China. There are more voices that are discordant, but they're still scattered and hard to hear if you're not really listening carefully. David, I find it also an interesting point is that in this case, China, at least through the government, is asking, you know, telling people that, you know, we're a global partner to deal with global threats, including the, this pandemic, and asking uh, people 
uh, individual citizens to trust them. At the same time, you mentioned there's been a whole series of problems in China, the, the treatment of the Uyghurs in um, Xinjiang province, people calling that a form of cultural genocide. We've had mass protest in Hong Kong. I mean, how much do you think at the, at the international level, is there a lack of trust in, in the Chinese authorities? I mean, is it just among the foreign policy elites who are following this or journalists? Or do you think there's a, a wider kind of sense that is China really the responsible country that we should align ourselves with going forward in the future? Well, this is the $64,000 question for Canada. We've had um, a debate that began really with the arrest of um, Meng Wanzhou, the chief financial officer of Huawei, and has continued through many months, more than a year of punishment and, and sort of cool relations from China, cool relations with China, the arrest, of course, of our, our two Michaels and, and many other things. I, I'd have thought that this long period during which we've had a good cause to look closely at China because of what it's doing to Canada, but also, as you say, because of what's happening to the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, which is, I think, you know, without doubt, the major human rights abuse uh, of our time. Um, what happened in, in Hong Kong, undermining um, the, the freedoms that we all pledged to support when, when Hong Kong uh, was returned to China. That should have shaken the consensus in, in Canada about a, a policy that basically says any kind of engagement with China is a good thing, a comprehensive engagement. You know, whatever we do, it, it's got to be good. But that, that policy has, has been pretty resilient. And even through this, um, my sense is that the, the government tends to want to retreat to save that policy, to preserve it. If we can just get China to like us again, we can get back to that, those good old days. I think the longer this goes, I still, I still believe that, that, that a change is going to come, that gradually more and more Canadians are going to say, not that we need to isolate China or ignore it or, or demonize it, but that we need a much smarter, more selective kind of engagement with China. Do we have to engage China on health issues? Absolutely. As SARS taught us that, this is teaching us that. But it means that we have to speak honestly and truthfully. We, uh, our ambassador recently said in his testimony to the, the Commons Committee that um, the response was commendable. I don't think we should be saying things like that. We don't, at the time, we, we didn't have enough evidence to say that. We shouldn't substitute facts with flattery. We need to, uh, we need to be much more thoughtful. We're not there yet, but my hope is that this year we may, we, we may finally accept that this is where we have to go. I, I hope we do have a, a deeper discussion in Canada. I know some civil society groups have been more forthright, former uh, diplomats and ambassadors such as yourself. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what comes out of, of the current Canadian government uh, if it takes a stronger approach. David, perhaps one last question, because I think it leads off from the last one. Um, the impact of this pandemic is, is changing. Um, it's having an impact around the world on, 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 it's going to have a massive economic impact, perhaps, you know, a Great Depression. Um, it's having a security impact on people's health. What do you think could emerge out of this? I mean, there's already been a lot of more talk about decoupling America from, from China, about uh, the dangers of relying on, on, um, on our, our, our pharmaceutical and medicinal supplies all being constructed in China during a pandemic. How do you see this emerging? Because I, I, I sometimes wonder, like, you know, there could be some massive changes coming out at the end of this after everything is, gets back to normal. I think that's a, that's a fascinating field for, you know, for thought. What's going to be permanent? What are we just not going to go back to doing uh, when this is over? When it comes to 
you know, the international scene, I think one of the things, and, and there, there are a lot of reasons to worry about the consequences, as well as to, to sort of predict what's naturally going to happen. I think the globalization of people-to-people -people links, the, the globalization of human interaction through mass migration, uh, the internationalization of education, the growth of mass tourism, that's going to change. Uh, I, I just I, I don't think we're you know cer certainly in areas like the cruise business, but I, I just think people are going to be a little bit less footloose and maybe a little bit less welcoming, and that's largely a bad thing for a country like Canada that is based on being welcoming, but it may cause us to reflect on a few things. If we look at trends in terms of our opening up to China, we had tremendous growth in uh, things like investor immigrants and tremendous growth in education. My concern about both of those trends was that they were driven by financial motivations, that the, the investor immigrant program, which brought thousands and thousands of people basically into Vancouver, was the transformation. We, we lost sight of citizenship and responsibilities of citizenship, and we focused on return for the, the sale of a passport. We also shortchanged those uh, Chinese migrants because we created a situation where they basically couldn't succeed in Canada by lowering the language requirements, uh, by you know, overselling the investment climate. We, we encouraged a lot of people to go into areas that were just not financially viable for them. Then we criticized them for continuing to keep their financial links to China. Similarly with students, because so many universities were chasing Chinese students, we overdeveloped the, 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 the Chinese recruitment and neglected recruitment elsewhere, which was actually unfair to Chinese students too, because they were coming for an international experience, not to be part of a large Chinese cohort. So if we think more about things like citizenship in terms of responsibilities and opportunities, if we think more about education in terms of creating the best possible learning environment for those in the classroom, starting with our own citizens, that's the, the first obligation, but finding room to welcome others, we'll do okay. But in any kind of human interaction, whenever it's led by money, you're going in the wrong direction. And we've been going in the wrong direction in a couple of fundamental ways. And if we learn that lesson, remain welcoming, but welcoming for the right reasons, we'll come out of this okay. Well, I like that you ended that on a positive note. If we give some more focus on this, David, um, we'll, we'll do what's best for our country, but also remain open and ensure that our institutions um, function as they were meant to be. So David, I really want to thank you for joining me and taking the time out of your, your um, busy schedule. Not um, so busy, unfortunately. <laughs> well, well, we're doing this to, to keep busy as well, right? Keep our, our mind sure. going, but, but thank you so much for joining us. Okay, thank you and thanks for the work you're doing.